Today will be in Esther chapter 3. It's printed for you in the ESV in Toto in your bulletin. Kids, make sure you take out your bulletins here. You have your own special outline. It makes a little bit more sense to, to me than the adult's outline does because I've got to be real fancy for them, you know. But for the kids, I kind of keep it simple. So you all can use that. Uh, the adults, I believe your outline's a little further on in the bulletin. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Oh, Father God, we thank you that we are bound for the promised land that you have set before us. We thank you that you draw us there every day. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new to us every morning because we do sin every day and need it. Lord, we ask that as we come before your word this morning that you would open this text up to us. May we see your mercy in Jesus Christ yet again. Give us discernment. Give us truth for our growth and for our transformation. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, boys and girls, you got your bulletin, right? Because I want to ask you all a question real quick. Boys and girls, have you ever had to deal with a bully? Anybody ever had to deal with a bully at school, maybe? Yeah, I know, I had to deal with bullies. I did a lot of bad things when I was a kid, but I was never the bully. I was always the one being bullied, and I, I don't like bullies. I don't like, I just remember the stress. You know, that person who makes you feel scared, that person who threatens you, that person who just kind of makes you, you don't want to go to school. Well, boys and girls, let me tell you a secret, okay? Your parents had bullies. You can talk to your parents about how the bully makes you feel. They, they will understand. They had bullies. You can do that. But today, the reason Pastor Sean's talking about bullies is, guess what? We are going to meet a major bully. In fact, he comes from a long line of bullies in the Old Testament. A long line of bullies specifically to God's people, in fact. Well, will just tell you a quick story. If you remember during the Exodus, right after the parting of the Red Sea, they were going through the wilderness, and one of the first people they encountered, their, their distinction is they were the first people to attack God's newly rescued people. They were called the Amalekites. They attacked them. God defended his people, and God said, if you can look it up, it's in the text of Exodus. He goes, I am going to remember that. That's usually not something you want the creator of all things to say to you as a people group, but God said, I'm going to remember that. They were bullies. The Israelites were, they were wandering slaves they didn't have a really army they were low on food and water they were tired and they were attacked at their weakest and god defended them but he remembered so god cursed them in fact he he condemned them to extinction at a future date and he promised i'm going to put intense hatred between the israelites and you y'all are always going to not get along and be not be good neighbors Later on in 1 Samuel 15, once the kingdom was established and they had a king on the throne, the very first king of Israel, God came to that first king of Israel. He said, I remember. I've got a job for you, son. I want you to go to the Amalekites. And I want you to kill everybody. And I want you to take all their stuff and burn it. Because this is not about plunder and increasing your wealth. This is about my justice. So he commissioned Saul to go do that. Do that. And if you remember the story, Saul spared the best of the stuff and he spared the king king agag and it's a really funny story i could i could recommend you reading it he's confronted by a prophet and it's just really interesting but anyway he is saul is rejected from being king because of that offense right there he let king agag live and he kept the best of his stuff over the years the major enemies of the people of god of israel were called agagites even if they weren't related to King Agag, if they had no connection whatsoever. In fact, in the, we have historical records from Jewish synagogues in the first century. Guess what Jews called the Romans? Agagites. You can Google this right now. 
your more conservative Jewish newspapers in Israel today, guess what they call Palestinians? Agagites. It became the name for the enemies of Israel. Now, you need to know that. Not just for trivia, you know, on trivia night, hey, I remember Pastor Sean said that I could win this little pie piece. No, you need to know that because we're going to meet a blood relative of King Agag today. A direct descendant, in fact, of Agag. And he is a bully through and through. So if you remember where we've been, we're going through the book of Esther. And as we're looking at the book of Esther, we're looking at the book of Esther under the idea of assimilation. I put together a poster for y'all to, to remember that. You've seen it around the church. Hopefully remember this poster. We're saying that empire of Esther and the empire in which we live wants us to assimilate, wants us to become part of their great cultural expression. And the book of Esther is a revolutionary tract. So those of us who follow Esther, we're going along with the spray paint and we're resisting that. Now, I am not talking about the Constitution of the United States of America. I am not talking about the Founding Fathers. I am talking about the culture that is in America today. This weird mixture of, of humanism, of the cult of self-fulfillment, of postmodern thinking that has become very, well, it likes to use the word tolerant, but it's become, in fact, very intolerant of anybody who's different from it. And it's predatory, and the pressure is always there. Don't be too religious. Don't believe too much stuff. Kind of just be normal in the bell curve, and we'll all get along. Assimilate. Become one of us. That's Esther's world, and that's our world. And so we are looking at Esther in the midst of this empire that says, Be nice. Don't believe too much. We're looking at that in our lives, and how can we find wisdom from the book of Esther? So today... I want to give you a summary sentence of where we're going today. Dads, use this in family worship throughout the week. It's a great way to remember what the Lord is doing in the sermon. You can use this to discuss the sermon at lunch today. Here's where we're going today. Empire causes suffering for its good, but Christ suffers for our good. Let me say that again. Empire causes suffering for its good, but Christ suffers for our good. So let's, let's unpack that together. The first thing we're going to look at here is empire comes to us and empire demands assimilate or suffer. Now, boys and girls, you may not know what that big word assimilate means. You, you, you may, that's why I kind of gave you your own outline here. We're talking about bullies. We are dealing with a bully today. And everybody knows what a bully is, right? I got a picture of a bully from one of my favorite comic strips. Daniel, I know you know where this comes from. This is Calvin and Hobbes. And this is the bully Mo pushing Calvin down. And a bully says what? A bully says, play my way or I will hurt you. That's what we're looking at today. today. So if you look at me, let's look at the first six verses of Esther together. This is God's word. After these things, King Ahasuerus, remember this is Xerxes is how we refer to him. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews 
the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So we meet Mordecai again. We get to see some more of his character. We meet Haman, and the first thing we see here is that basically Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai shows his foolishness here. You see, boys and girls, if you're dealing with a bully, you've got to make sure you recognize that you need to stand up to the real bully and not the fake bully, not the wrong bully. And Mordecai stands up to the wrong bully. Here's what I mean. We meet this guy, Haman, for the first time. And look who Haman is. What's the first, first thing it says about Haman? It says he's an Agagite. He's one of those guys. And apparently, the way it's laid out by, by giving this name Hamadatha, who we don't know who that is, but usually the form of that means he's a blood relative. He's the real deal. He's a direct descendant of King Agag. This is bad. Esther may be queen, but a certified longtime enemy of God's people is now one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. Now, you may not be up on your politics of the ancient Persian Empire, so I'm going to help you out a little bit, okay? I'm going to give you a picture of who Haman is. Boys and girls, do you know who this person is? Can anybody tell me who this is? Who is that? Jafar, that's right, from the movie Aladdin. Does anybody remember Jafar's position, his title in the movie? Anybody remember? He was the royal vizier. That's Haman's position. Haman is Jafar. He is the king's right-hand man, his confidant. He's the one who the king says, hey, can you make this happen? He makes it happen. He's the one who comes to the king with ideas. He is, you know, the closest thing we have, and it's not even that good of an analogy, is you have the queen of England and you had the prime minister, the one who does everything for her, who executes the government. But a, a royal vizier has even more power than that. He is Jafar. If you remember, Jafar wasn't a nice guy, and neither is Haman. And so the king says, okay, when Haman, the royal vizier, shows up somewhere, guess what you got to do? Well, empire's concerned for its glory. He represents the empire, so you must bow down and honor him. But Mordecai won't do it. Now, at this point, I'm supposed to commend Mordecai to you. I'm supposed to observe that he was a good, faithful follower of God, and he wouldn't compromise and worship another. But, but, but I can't, because that's not what's going on. Haman is not trying to be worshipped. The Old Testament has absolutely no prohibition against giving court officials their due. And I assure you that as a government official who was still breathing, Mordecai had bowed more than once to Xerxes. You see, it's un-American, but it's not unbiblical to bow before a political leader. And y'all do know there's a difference between being an American and being biblical, right? That's kind of hard for us sometimes, but that's a different sermon. So anyway, Mordecai is a Jew. He's not bowing before Haman, not because Haman's trying to be worshipped. He's not going to bow before this guy, because remember Mordecai's genealogy in chapter 2? Remember who he's from? He's a direct descendant of Saul. Remember, it takes it back to Kish. And guess who Kish had a son? Saul. So here's Saul's great-great-great-grandson, and here's Agag's great-great-great-grandson. And we're supposed to think of that ancient hatred. We're supposed to think, oh, this thing's coming to a head again. So basically, Mordecai finds out who Haman is. He knows who Haman is. He's like, you know what? Ain't no way I'm bowing down to that Yankee carpetbagger. It ain't happening. Not doing it. And an original reader would also have thought at this point, if Saul had been faithful to God and gotten rid of Agag, Haman wouldn't exist. Yet again, we see the sins of God's people in the past causing problems for Esther and her generation. 
See, we can't commend Mordecai here in this situation. Mordecai is foolish. Mordecai is stubbornly sanctimonious here. He didn't protest his daughter being drafted into the harem, remember? He didn't. In fact, he told her to hide who she was. And here, here's where he draws a line in the sand. Oh. Mordecai it really is, is a pre-incarnation of the Pharisees. He is that religious person that many of you know who's quite good at pointing out others' faults, who's quite good at saying, well, you know, I don't think a Christian should watch that movie. And I don't think a Christian would wear that. And do you think that that song honors Jesus? All the while himself being what? A salacious gossip. You know, the stuff God actually says I don't like. A gluttonous overeater. Prideful. Sabbath-breaking, prayerless non-tither. But let's not talk about the substantial stuff. Let's talk about the music you listen to. I remember when I was in seminary learning to become a Presbyterian because I came from a Baptist background. I got around a group in Jackson, Mississippi. And if you don't know anything about the Presbyterian church, Jackson, Mississippi is kind of like Mecca in more ways than one. And I got around a group of, there's no other way to call them this. These people were Shiite Calvinists, okay? I mean, they were ready to strap on some explosives and blow something up. For, for John Calvin. I'm not kidding you. And one of the things that they wouldn't do, they took a hardcore stand that Christians shouldn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. And so I got it. I got, well, okay, I got involved in that group. And so I went through this very sanctimonious time of why well, I wouldn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm not going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And oh man, I felt so prideful. And I, I didn't feel prideful. I felt so good about myself. I felt so godly. And I was being prideful and arrogant. And it wasn't until I met a man who's now my mentor, a former Navy SEAL who loved America and served his country. And it, it just changed my entire attitude about everything. And, you know, when, when, a, when a former Navy SEAL who can bench press you confronts you about something, you tend to listen, and so he got my attention. And anyway, the whole point of that is it was my stubborn pride wrapped up in religiosity and posing as faithful Christian living, but it was just my hang-up. And that's what Mordecai does here. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to get stuck in our own sanctimony, our own religious hang-ups. We have a prejudice, a, a preconceived notion about, well, this is godly. And so we wrap up that prejudice in religious garb and we say, this is what it means to be a faithful Christian. And often others can see this a lot clearer than we can. I mean, look at Mordecai's friends here. What do they do to him? They spend tons of time with him trying to understand his resistance. They basically say, look, the king commanded why aren't you obeying the religious authorities? You see, here's where I want to make a big key difference and make sure you understand before, you know, Department of Homeland Security raids the building. There is a big difference between resisting the assimilation of culture and rebelling against God's ordained governmental authorities. We need to remember that most of the New Testament was written from Roman prison cells and you will not find a call to rebellion in there. I'm not talking about you need to take up arms and resist the government. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the culture of America is becoming more and more predatory, and we need to resist that culture. And that's a big difference here. And Mordecai confuses the two. He's foolish. And so as we resist our culture, we need to make sure that we ask God for wisdom to make sure that we're not being rebellious against His ordained authorities. And if you're a little confused about that, I would commend to you this afternoon, perhaps study and meditate over Romans chapter 13 and recognize that the word king there is Nero. And if you don't know anything about Emperor Nero, Google him and it will humble you about what the New Testament means about resisting authorities and submitting to those authorities.
So anyway, Mordecai's sanctimony, just like ours, causes problems down the road. Haman notices everybody else is bowing down. One guy's standing up. You're kind of going to, you're going to stand out. And Haman is just raging mad. The verb here is actually the same verb used for Xerxes' reaction when Queen Vashti refused to come to him. Oh, he was just ticked off. Haman is just, he's so livid. And so he decides, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill your entire family. I want, because he, re, he realizes, oh, he's a Jew. I hate those guys. I'm gonna, this is my opportunity. I'm going to kill them all. See, he sees a chance to finish what his people started in the Exodus. But behind that, Satan sees an opportunity to accomplish what he has been about since the very beginning. Kill God's people. Stop the Messiah from coming. And we need to remember that. Because Satan's in the same game plan today. The struggle with empire today is not about our Second Amendment rights. It is not about abortion. It is not about same-sex marriage. It is always about the destruction of the gospel and God's people. And it may use different ways to get it, but you need to always look under that. It is always about an attack upon the gospel and God's people. And when we see that, that will keep us from making foolish mistakes and going after the wrong bully. Because Mordecai's foolishness caused him to miss that. Let's not make the same mistake. Because what happens next? Well, I'll tell you, boys and girls, I'll give you a secret. What happens next is the secret to bullies. You ready for this? Deep down, those bullies, they're afraid. They're the most fearful person you know. It's one of the reasons they're a bully. And we're going to see that here, how afraid these bullies actually are. Look with me, verses 7. We'll read through verse 11. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month to the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took off his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So Haman finally goes to Xerxes. He brings in Xerxes, and Xerxes here is full of fear. All you got to do is just wave a little threat in front of Xerxes, and Xerxes jumps. But how does he get there first? Well, it starts out, basically, Haman is rolling dice. We've actually found, archaeologists have found ancient Persian Purim. They look exactly like dice. So little cubes with dots on them. So basically what he's doing is he's trying to figure out the best time to kill all the Jews. It was assumed that the spiritual powers of the world would guide the dice. And so they're basically saying, okay, what month? Nope, not January. Nope, not February. Nope. So it goes and finally on the 12th month, okay, what day of the month? They roll, they find. So they're thinking that 
the spirit world will tell them what time to do. So basically, he's consulting a magic eight ball, in other words. But we can't be too harsh on him, because here's one thing about Haman that we see in the book of Esther that we don't see from any, quote, God's people in the book of Esther. Anybody going to guess what it is? They're actually consulting a spiritual power. There is no incident of the people in the book of Esther praying ever. At least he is not being a practical atheist. Mordecai and Esther never pray. At least he's seeking some sort of spiritual guidance here. See, what it does here, this shows us how Haman is a perfect citizen of empire then and now. He he is in touch with this pre-Christian paganism. He's not an atheist. He believes in a spiritual world out there. You know, gods or genies, actually in their culture, they will help me get what I want. He is spiritual, but not religious. Anybody ever heard that phrase? And for us, in a post-Christian return to paganism, which is what is happening in our empire, we hear that phrase a lot, don't we? Spiritual, but not religious. It's become kind of the, the end thing to say. I was reading an article this week by a, a teacher named Peter Jones. And he, he, he was talking about this recent convocation he went to. It's a long quote. I think I have it up here for you so you can follow along. I want you to, I want you to hear this. Here's what he says. He says, At his seminary's annual convocation called Evolving World, Emerging Church, the dean of Bangor Theological Seminary said that there is a spiritual revival afoot, but it's not religious. The new spiritual icons are rock star Bono former President Jimmy Carter, and celebrities like Angelina Jolie and her partner Brad Pitt. Salvation in the 21st century is being a good human being. Appropriately, the dean calls this humanitarian spirituality. Wow. It's the president of a seminary talking about you need to be spiritual but not religious. You don't need to have dogma. Let's just get in touch with the worlds that are out there. So if you ever think about going to seminary, do not go up to the frozen tundra of Bangor, Maine and go to seminary there, please. All right, so back to Haman. Well, the dice answer, the magic eight ball shows up and tells him what time to do it. So he goes to the king to make his case. Look with me. Let's zoom in on verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, again, this is Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. See, Xerxes is never told it's the Jews. Just a people group committing the ultimate sin in empire. What's the ultimate sin? They have infiltrated the empire. They are everywhere, and they won't assimilate. They're different. Dear flock, As American Christians, this is our calling. Our government should be saying this about us. The media leaders should be saying this about us. Do they? And do we see it as the compliment it is, or do we spend the next, you know, several days whining about it and sharing the newspaper article all over Facebook? Because they're picking on us again for being different. It's just saying, yes, they see that we're different. Because we won't assimilate. You see, like our empire, ancient Persia was actually known for its tolerance and multiculturalism. And just like ours, that is, unless you wouldn't conform. 
if a certain group kept saying crazy things like, I don't know, uh, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Or Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through Him. You know, weird, crazy, radical stuff like that. Then suddenly the empire tends to become quite unicultural and intolerant. Because empire is afraid and insecure like all bullies. It does not like substantial differences with its goals. And so it will crush you. Haman plays on that fear in Xerxes. And it worked. He said to him, literally, there is no profit for you to give them rest. So Xerxes is afraid. Just as Haman planned. And so Haman says, hey, I've got an idea. And so Xerxes says, here are the keys to the nuclear bombs. Go. You can have it. I don't even want to mess with it. You, you do it in my name. Every law was written in Xerxes' name. Then he took his signet ring. They put thick wax on there. And he would put that ring in there. And that was the official seal. The law had that seal. It was directly from Xerxes. Xerxes says, just, just handle it. I, this is scary. I don't even want to mess with this. He blindly hands over Haman the power of the empire. Haman literally becomes the most powerful man in the world at that time, more powerful than Xerxes because he's actually doing what Xerxes says. Now you know, in a constitutional republic such as ours, we're, we're the ones with the signet ring. We give it to politicians to wield. Do we really take that responsibility seriously? How often have we been fooled by sound bites, swayed by rhetoric, or simply voted against our conscience because this would look better in our bank account? You see, when we do that, a fellow pastor named Ian Duggett, here's how he points it out, says it better than I could. He says, you know, when we do that, we can hardly be surprised or shocked if our government passes laws that are rep repressive towards religion or genocidal towards the unborn. We gave the politicians a signet ring and went off to celebrate while others paid the price. How often have we just blindly, this is how I always vote, without really giving it much thought. Well, from Mordecai's foolishness, we're taken through Xerxes' fear, which leads to Haman's fury. And that's how the text ends up. Look with me at verses 12 through 15 now. <laughs> Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Sutter the Citadel. Uh, the Citadel, excuse me. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So we see here, don't we, boys and girls, that even though bullies are afraid, bullies are mean, aren't they? They still do bad things. We see Haman's fury here. The day is set. It's 11 months out. 
In verse 12, we say the edict is basically sent to the governors, to the head of the state police, and to the local sheriffs, so everybody will enforce it. And then in verse 14, it gets even more sinister. It's printed up and put in the town square. It's posted on everybody's Facebook page. It's, twin, it's trending on Twitter. Everybody's supposed to do this. It's not just for the army and the official guys who are licensed to carry guns to enforce. This is for everybody can take place in this. Here's what I mean by this. I want you to imagine that all of a sudden this edict passes from President that guy. And it says, on March 15th, 2014, there will be, on that day only, there will be no federal, there will be no state, there will be no county, and there will be no local charges. You have free reign. You may kill anybody who is a registered member of a church. You may plunder their stuff. There will be no charges on that day only. How safe would we feel from our neighbors when the reins of government, which the Bible says government exists for one of the reasons to restrain evil, it's a blessing that God gives to us when that reign is taken off and the evil of people's hearts come forward, how secure would we be? How small would the roles of churches be by March 15th? <laughs> That's what happens. Can you imagine what these Jews are feeling? And don't forget at this point, the land of Israel is under the thumb of Persia. This is not just the Jews here in the capital we're talking about. We're talking about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That stuff is happening right now. They're all going to be killed. How is Jesus going to come when there's no one left? Satan has a plan, and he's pushing it forward. And so we see having sealed the deal, Xerxes and Haman are secure in their inside-the-beltway world. They sit back in the West Wing and enjoy a cool one while out and fly over country. There is utter chaos. And that's how the story ends, or the text ends at this point. But see, there is the hope. The empire is not overjoyed. The empire is dismayed at the edict against the Jews. God has somehow not abandoned his people. Everybody's not, yes, we get to kill them and take their stuff, like happened 60 years ago in another country. Instead, everybody's like, no, this is, this is not right. See, empire is a bully who says, play my way or I'll hurt you. But there's someone else at work too. God promises, my son suffered to make you family. You see, boys and girls, what I mean is this. If you look on your kids, if you look at your, your bulletin, God comes and says, guess what? In the midst of all the stuff the bully is doing to you, I'm going to come and I will adopt you. And then I'll show you how to play. Whereas the bully says, play my way or I'll hurt you. God says, I'll just make you family, then I'll teach you how to play. How about that? Look again with me at verse 12. It says, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. That's not just a trivial date. That date is the eve of Passover. Every Jew in the empire is preparing for their version of Good Friday and Easter, basically. They're remembering when God delivered them from Pharaoh's edict of death, when the blood of a lamb spread over their doorposts, saved them from death. And every Jewish reader at this point will ask, where is the lamb who will save God's people from this edict this time? You know, the New Testament, Jesus Christ himself promises that all scripture is written for our benefit. Jesus also claimed that all scripture is about him ultimately. And so we have to ask at this point, 
Where is Jesus in this story? Here is where Jesus is, a great, is in this story. Xerxes was a great king. He was at the helm of the mighty Persian Empire. He didn't require much. Simply obey the laws and don't rebel. Mordecai did not obey the king's law. By doing it publicly, he rebelled. And fundamentally, Mordecai deserved what Haman had the empire throw at him. But his failure also brought along his entire people in the punishment under the wrath and curse of this empire. And if God is to preserve his people from this just deserved wrath and curse, he must provide a deliverer. And so too, dear flock, our God is a great king at the helm of all of creation. When he created mankind in his image, he did not require much. Simply obey and don't rebel. Adam, the first man, did not obey God's law and he brought all of his people into that wrath and curse justly deserved with him. Fundamentally, Adam deserved the sentence of death laid upon him. And if God was to preserve his people, he too must provide a deliverer. Mordecai may have deserved the wrath of empire, but Haman's fury was illegitimate and petty. But God himself has far more reason to be furious at us for what we have done against his glory. He has so much right to be angry at our sin and rebellion before him. We all deserve his wrath and curse due to us for our sin, and we know it. We have refused to bow down before God on numerous occasions. We have refused to come in worship and repentance and to give Him the honor due Him as Creator. But instead of fury and pettiness like Haman, our God did something else. Instead of the empire saying, it is not into my profit to give you rest, we are offered the kindness and grace of God by finding rest in Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. See, just like Mordecai and Adam, we deserve the edict of death upon us. But instead, God puts that edict of death upon Christ, and then He adopts us as His own people. Christ died the death we deserve, so God could give us His righteousness and make us His very own. Because God promised, my son suffered to make you family. Because empire causes suffering for its good. But Christ suffers for our good. Now if you do not know Christ like this, recognize now your guilt. You have sinned and you have fallen short of God's best for you. You cannot be good enough. You cannot earn His favor. The decree against your rebellion cannot be set aside. You will be punished for your sin unless you look to Jesus Christ alone and let Him take the punishment you deserve. You don't have to go through any magic formulas. You don't have to memorize some weird paragraph. You simply have to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. He will then take that punishment for you. He will give you His righteousness and you can have peace and rest with God your Creator. And if you do know Christ, oh, flee from the sanctimony that tempts all of us. Flee from the legalism. Flee from being a Pharisee and live in the reality of the grace of God in your life. 
recognize how much you deserve God's wrath and how gracious He's been, and it will free you from judging other people. And then, as empire seeks to squeeze you into its mold, ask God to give you wisdom on how to resist without rebelling against God's ordained authorities. And then let us all, with renewed hearts, with a renewed vision for God's faithfulness, let's look upon the grace of our Redeemer as we see that this is our story. Empire wants to kill us. God wants to kill those who have sacrificed His wrath, but instead He sacrifices His Son instead. He has saved us from a just decree of death by placing it on His Son. Believe that. Put your faith in that and then walk in the righteousness He has provided and you will have rest. And if you've never done that, do it now. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we...